Um, this morning's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 33. Um, that's found, found on page 771 of the Church Bibles. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an, on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Well, today we come back 
to our 10 pop-up moments series that we've been doing all across the year. We're up to number nine in this series. Now, you'll remember that we've been looking at 10 key moments in the story of the Bible, moments where there's a huge shift in what's going on in the story, where things are changed forever. So the first moment that we looked at was creation, of course, because obviously God creating things changed things forever. Then we saw the fall. That's another huge shift in the story where humans tainted the world and took it on a dark path. The next huge change in the story was God's promises to Abraham. Hope was introduced into what looked like a hopeless situation because God promised that he was going to rescue the world from this mess that we'd introduced. Then we saw a series of developments where exactly how God was going to restore the world became clearer and clearer until finally, last time we were in this series, we came to Jesus. Last time we saw this. We saw all the threads of the Old Testament coming together in Jesus. Everything was always heading to him. All the themes, all the characters, all the events pointed to Jesus. And we saw that Jesus' death and resurrection stands at the center of history as the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue this world from our mess. This is the critical moment of history. This changes everything for good. But does it? What difference does Jesus' death and resurrection really make in the story? If Jesus changes everything, why is the world still a mess? And why is evil still out there? That's what I asked the kids. And why is it still in here? Now, the disciples in Acts 1 are looking at the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes, and they have this very question of sorts. So shouldn't what Jesus had done change everything? They thought, surely we should now see this world completely restored. And so as Jesus is about to go back to heaven, they're confused. And they say in Acts 1 verse 6, these words, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's like they're saying, hang on, haven't you forgotten something, Jesus? What about the promises to restore the world through Israel? And listen to how Jesus answers the disciples in verse 7. He says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus says they've missed something in the plan. The climax in the story might have been the cross and the resurrection, but there's still another step that needs to, be, to, to happen before this story is done. There's a gap between what Jesus has accomplished at the cross and the point at which it is unrolled fully in this world. And this gap, Jesus says, is for a period of time that's not for them to know. For all they knew, it could be a week, it could be a decade, or it could be a hundred years. Now, we know, of course, with the benefit of hindsight, that the gap is at least 1,983 years. But when it comes to looking forward, we're in exactly the same position as the disciples were. Will it be a week till Jesus comes back? Will it be a decade? Or will it be another 1,800 
sorry, 1,983 years. Jesus says when is not important for us to know. What this gap is like and what it's for, that's what we need to know. And so Jesus says to the disciples what they need to know in verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What this new era is going to be like is all believers empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the past, it was just a few special people who God worked through by his spirit. That's all about to change. And what this new era is going to be for is for the message of Jesus going to the ends of the earth. In the past, everything was centered on Israel. Now God is sending them out. Now in Acts 2, which was read for us just before, we get to see this pop-up moment that Jesus is talking about begin. And keep in mind here that this is our pop-up moment. This is the one moment that we, T&E, us here today, belong to. You know, every other moment that we've looked at over this series, we've looked at it as having come and then gone. Whereas this moment describes our own present experience. Because it begins in Acts 2, but it continues until Jesus returns. And did you notice as um, Acts 2 was being read, just how much the Holy Spirit changes everything? The disciples go from cowering in a room with a locked door to standing out in the middle of the city. Or think about Peter. Peter goes from having having denied Jesus to a little servant girl to proclaiming him to a crowd of men And telling them, accusing them that they've murdered Jesus. Peter explains to the crowd exactly what's caused this change. In verse 33, he says that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Christ is now exalted. Jesus is right now ruling in heaven. A bit further on, Peter says that he's seated at God's right hand. His work is done. He's accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. What's left to happen now is not Jesus being exalted, the cross, the resurrection, Jesus' ascension has already lifted him up. There's nowhere higher that he can go than at the right hand of God. What's left is for Jesus' enemies to be brought down. Look at verse 34. Peter says that God has said to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now imagine what it would be like for those who are listening there to hear these things, especially as Peter said in verse 36, these words, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, if they really believe that, that would be a terrifying thought, wouldn't it? And we see in verse 37 that they they do believe it and they are terrified. 
When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And then look at how Jesus brings his enemies down in this new era. Look at what Peter says in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What we see in this pop-up moment is that this new era is a time where enemies are brought down by being brought to Christ. Anybody can turn to Christ and be forgiven. These people killed Jesus. I don't think any of us can outdo that. No matter what you do in this life, no matter how wrong it is, I can't see how it could be more serious than this. And yet, not only are these enemies of Jesus given the chance to be forgiven, but they're promised to receive the Holy Spirit as well. This gap that exists before Jesus restores the world, it exists as a time for people to get right with God. It exists as a space for enemies of Jesus to humble themselves and to be welcomed into his kingdom. But this gap won't last forever. One day it will close. All of Jesus' enemies will be brought down right now by being forgiven. But on that last day, anyone who continues as Jesus' enemy will be brought down by being judged. By the way, anyone who does not recognize Jesus as Lord actively makes themselves his enemy. You know, it's, it's not possible to be like Switzerland, to be neutral. Jesus says, I have the right to rule your life. Now we either say, yes, you do, or we say, no, you don't. It's just not possible to say, actually, I'm neutral about that. I just don't have a position. To be neutral about Jesus' right to rule any of this world that he made, that he died to restore, is actually to diminish his honour. And it's to actively make yourself choose to be his enemy. So as you can see, it, it's really critical to know that Christ is exalted and is seated at the right hand of God. And if you're still not sure about that, do something about it before it's too late. Like, come and ask me to explore who Jesus is with you, to show you a bit more about him. It's really critical to get that Jesus is exalted right now, ruling. But it's also really critical to get that we are not exalted. Now, it's pretty obvious, really, or it should be. But time and time again, I see people who are confused and shocked when they continue to experience the mess of this world, even though they're Christians. They feel as if God's letting them down. Uh, they talk as if Jesus is failing them. Now, apparently, as a society, and especially Gen Y, we're unhappy because we have unrealistic expectations. You can kind of see a uh, diagram from an article um, that kind of demonstrates this. Now, I I'm just included in Gen Y, or at least I like to think so, so I'm talking about myself here too. Apparently, we grew up thinking that we're special. We grew up thinking that the world owes us. 
And so we expect things to go smoothly for us. Um, Our expectations are that we'll do brilliantly at most things without really having to try. And for all you baby boomers out there who are judging us right now, it's your fault, you realize. (laughs) You're the ones who told us that we're special. But as Christians, we can import this way of, of thinking about life into our Christian life. Except when things don't go how we expect them to, instead of feeling confused and unhappy with the world, we feel confused and unhappy with God. Why are you doing this to me, God? Life's supposed to go smoothly for me. You're failing me right now. But we shouldn't expect smooth sailing. Christ hasn't yet restored the world. We should expect to still be affected by the mess of this world. Our hope and destiny is not to live a good, comfortable life now. It's to live with Christ in a world restored forever when he returns. For a while, when I was at Bible college, I went to this church that used the old prayer book. I'm talking seriously old, 1662. And for ages, I was really confused by one of the lines in it. It said this, Let us pray for the whole state of Christ's church militant here in earth. Now, week by week, they'd say that and be like, what? So eventually I had to look up, what on earth is Christ's militant church? Apparently, it's not the army chaplains out there. It's actually what we all are. It's the church that's not yet triumphant. It's the church that's still on the battlefield. It's the church at war. Not literally, of course. It's a metaphor for the fact that we're in the thick of the mess and the struggle of this world. We're not safe at home and comfortable. We're not yet exalted. Some people have compared this gap that we're talking about today between Jesus' first coming and his second coming with D-Day in World War II. You know, in France, at Normandy on D-Day, the Allied forces broke through the German defences. And what they achieved was so significant that it meant that it was only a matter of time before the Germans were defeated completely. And so, in this illustration, Jesus' death is compared to D-Day. It accomplished everything that needs to be done to ensure victory. And the gap between The cross and Jesus' return is like the fighting, the rest of the fighting that took place until Germany inevitably fell. Now, that's not a bad illustration, but it probably doesn't go far enough. See, this gap that we're talking about, it's more like the signing of the armistice in World War I, where the war was won, but between the signing and the ceasing of hostilities, there was a gap. Hostilities were to cease at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Between the signing and the ceasefire, it was not a good idea to start partying at the front line. Imagine how tragic it would be to be so close to seeing the end of the war, but then to get shot. Well, likewise for us, we need to remember who we are. We're the church militant. We're still on the battlefield. If we're feeling pretty comfortable in this life as a follower of Christ, then chances are something's going wrong. 
The victory is won. Yes, it's definite. It's coming to us, but we're not there yet. Now, I've been talking about this pop-up moment, this massive change in the story, like it's a gap with the kids and with you guys. When in actual fact, it's not so much a gap as an overlap. Now, what I'm going to say now is, is a bit more complicated. So if you feel like you're not ready for this or if your brain's saying, hey, man, it's like January, what are you doing? If that's you, feel free to just tune out for a couple of minutes. No judgment. You can look around, whatever you want to do. I'll call you back in a minute. For everyone else who wants a bit, bit go a bit deeper, let me explain what I mean. The disciples, as they're standing with Jesus about to leave them, they didn't expect a gap or an overlap. They expected Jesus to judge the world and to bring salvation to Israel. You can see it on this next one. They expected Jesus to wrap up history. Do you want to go to the next one for us, Andrew? They expected Jesus just um, with continuity to wrap up history and to deal with the mess of this world once and for all time. But as we've seen, Jesus does things differently to their expectation. Jesus is not going to wrap up history until he returns at another unspecified time. But Jesus does deal with the mess of this world once and for all time. The cross is the judgment that's going to happen at the end of history, brought forward into history. And so the cross makes possible the salvation that's going to happen at the end of history to be available now. Because in Jesus, that end of history judgment has already happened in history. Jesus has started already a new era that will never end, a kingdom that will just endure forever and ever. But he's done it so that it overlaps with our history now. This history that's about to end. Now what this means for us, next slide, thanks Andrew, is that if we could be connected to Jesus, his death and resurrection, then we would have already experienced God's end time judgment now. And we would already be experiencing his salvation and there would be no end of history judgment for us whatsoever. And this, of course, is exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit connects us to Jesus and to what he's done for us. Think about it. Even the disciples, until they received the Holy Spirit, Jesus' death and resurrection was no help to them. It's by the Holy Spirit that we are joined to Christ and that we are completely free from God's judgment forever. In fact, if we have the Holy Spirit, we've already come through that judgment in Christ. Now, it's worth me just saying, and at this point it's probably worth everybody jumping back on board, it's worth me saying that you'll meet people from time to time that tell you that you can trust in Jesus, but be missing out on the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever met someone like that. I remember... Uh, I've met several people like that, but one that sticks in my memory is I was 16 years old and went to this church and the minister's wife looked me in the eyes directly and she said, Stephen, do you have the Holy Spirit? Now, she might have meant well by that, 
But what she was implying was actually deeply offensive to God. The Father promises the Holy Spirit to anyone who trusts in Jesus. In fact, you can't turn to Jesus without the Holy Spirit being at work in your life. If we think that someone doesn't have the Holy Spirit, then we should also think that they are not saved. Otherwise, we're implying that there's a way to be saved without the Holy Spirit. And that's offensive to God, the Holy Spirit. In this overlap of the ages, it's the Holy Spirit that connects us to Christ and to the new era that Christ has started that's going to last forever. We belong with Christ in that new era. But until Christ returns, we also belong to the old era that's coming to an end. It's kind of like you're at the movies. This illustration works well for me because when there's a TV screen or something like that, I just can't look away. My kids, I can't believe it. They can be on a device watching TV at the same time, so it wouldn't work for them. But it's like you're at the movies, and midway through, the cinema staff come in, and they set up another screen to the side and start playing a different movie. So now there's like two movies going on at the same time. Now, the first movie is dark and disturbing, and the acting's pretty bad. Let's say Twilight or something like that. <laughs> so you start watching the new movie. The new one, it's, it's beautiful. It's inspiring. It's amazingly crafted. If Mike Sams was preaching right now, he'd say, Star Wars. Star Wars, The Force Awakens. That's right. But it's an unsettling experience sitting there, being caught with both movies playing. You just want to focus on the beautiful one. But you pulled in two directions. Every so often, something from the other movie captures your attention, and you pulled away temporarily from the new movie till you think, what am I doing? I want to be a part of that other story. I don't want to miss it. Well, that's a bit what it's like for us as Christians, isn't it? We live in the overlap of the ages. We're captivated by a new story for this world. But the old story, it's competing for our attention. It's not a comfortable experience living like this, but it is a temporary one. One story is coming to an end. In fact, we're in the last days. That's how Peter puts it. Have a look at verse 17. Peter's in the last days. We're in the last days. Like the disciples, it's not for us to know when the very last day will be. Like them, we need to know what this time is like and what it's for. And as we've seen, it's a time for enemies to become children of God. After Peter explained what was going on that day, 3,000 people turned to Christ. Could you imagine if today, here, 3,000 people turned to Christ? It would be awesome, wouldn't it? And yet, still, our job would not be done. There's 100,000 people just in our area. Let's not forget that until Jesus comes back, we're still on the battlefront. We've still got a job to do. And that's to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now we get to see a snapshot of what life was like for those 3,000 after they turned to Christ. Have a look at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It takes concentration 
to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. The default is always to get caught up in the things that take us away from God, things that are coming to an end. But notice how they devote themselves to things that won't allow them to get distracted by what's coming to an end. The apostles' teaching, spending time with each other, prayer, they're all things that help them remember that they're on the battlefield. And for us, we have all of these same things. We have the apostles' teaching in Scripture. See, what does devotion to Scripture look like? Well, devotion means to persist in something, to be faithful in it, to busily engage in it. If we want to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, then we need to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and devote ourselves to getting the Holy Spirit's word to us into our minds and into our hearts. And this is a no-brainer, really. If, you, if we want to keep our eyes fixed on God's story, then, of course, we li- need to listen to God's telling of the story. They devote themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. This is probably meaning they're devoting themselves to fellowship in big groups, like when they all go to the temple, and also in smaller groups, literally over a meal. What about us? What about you? Are you persisting in? being faithful to, busily engaging in fellowship. Another way to put it is, what does it take to wrestle you away from this here today? Now, there can be good reasons not to be here, of course, but when you have to miss out on fellowship here, does it feel like you're being torn away? Or does missing out on meeting together just feel like, whatever, who cares? And how are we going with fellowshipping with each other over meals? When was the last time that you had people around? Could you honestly say that it's something you're devoted to? And remember, devotion doesn't always mean it's easy or always a joy. It means that you know it's valuable, so you pursue it. And finally, they devote themselves to prayer. This week I heard a sermon, um, I heard in a sermon that I was listening to someone say something that hit me hard. They said, any area that you don't pray about is an area in which you think you don't need God's help. At least subconsciously, you think you can do it yourself. We need God's help. We need to pray more. We're in the last days before Jesus returns. We're on the battlefront. Our job is to take Christ to the ends of the earth. To do that well, we need to devote ourselves to Scripture. We need to devote ourselves to each other. And we absolutely need to devote ourselves to prayer. Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, we desperately need you. We thank you that you have poured out your Holy Spirit into our lives through Christ. And we ask that he would be at work in our lives, that we would follow his lead in every area. Lord, help us to know this story that you've called us to, to live for it, to not get pulled back to this other story that's ending. Lord, help us to know that in your mercy you have created this space 
not just for us to turn to you, but for many, many people. Lord, we ask that you would pour out your spirit, not just on us, but on so many people in this area. Send us out, Lord. Help us to see people to come to know you. This year, Lord, as we send out Trinity Grove, we pray that it would be a great year and future of many people turning to you, repenting and going from being your enemies to being your dearly loved children. Lord, help us to do the things which are going to keep our eyes fixed on you, to devote ourselves to the teaching that you've provided through the apostles. Lord, to spend time with each other. And Lord, to keep coming to you in dependence in prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name, by the Holy Spirit. Amen.